Well, this morning, um, broadly speaking, we're going to begin focusing on John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Um, and we'll actually take two weeks here today. We'll only make it through John 3, 16 uh, this morning, which is a verse that's no doubt very familiar to us. And then we'll look at 17 to 21 next week. Lord willing, that will be the plan. Um, and, and just almost as a side note here as we begin, I, I think I need to say something about the, the translation we're reading from, just because John 3.16 obviously is probably the most familiar Bible verse to, to anybody who's ever heard Bible verses ever. And most of the time, if we've heard it, we've probably heard it sound a little bit different than uh, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible translation that we read from today. Um, and, and that's okay, but I want to just say a quick word about that, because what the Christian Standard Bible translation has attempted to do is, is modernize it so we catch the proper thrust of the grammar that's here in the Greek. So we're used to hearing, for God so loved the world, right? You notice in the Christian Standard Version, they, they helped us with the, with the grammar there by saying, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his only son. So that, that actually clarifies what, what, what is intended there in the language. Um, and I hope, I hope that's not confusing for us, but it's just different than we're used to hearing. So, so I just thought I'd share that with you. We don't say, you know, I, Jared so loved his kids uh, that, that I bought them Christmas presents. Or so we just don't speak like that anymore. So, so this, this is just clarifying for us. Um, I do the buy them Christmas presents, but we don't talk like that. Or do I? Yeah, yeah, probably. It does better, at least than I do, yeah. Um, good. Well, having, having said all that, then we'll set the context for our study in this way. So John 3.16, uh, th there is great value in understanding the why. Uh, for example, if we're in a position of providing guidance, the why is a critical element uh, that must be included in our directions. At least it's helpful if it's included. We recognize this as parents. If we're asking our children to do things with regularity, uh, they can be overwhelmed uh, at best, or even patronized at worst, if we don't provide the why as to, as to the requests that we're making or the directives that we're giving. And, and the why isn't just important to provide when we're giving directions, but it's also very appreciated when we're on the receiving end of those directions. Um, I came across an article uh, earlier this week that referenced the former CEO of USAA, so the former CEO of the insurance company that provides car and home insurance, and I think other insurance too, to military personnel and their families. And the CEO had been interviewed because of the caring nature of the culture that he'd created in his call centers. So you call for help on your policy, you call USAA, and the employees of USAA, at least at the time this article was written, were, were noted to be far above average in their customer support. Um, and the CEO at the time explained that that the people taking calls for this insurance company were so obviously helpful because they had a very purposeful first four days with the company. And that first four days with the company involved them uh, spending time in workshops which emphasized caring for veterans and their families because of how much veterans and their families had done to care for, for us as the American population. And, and so his employees went through this four-day long orientation focused on that perspective and since these employees had been provided such a, a thorough why for offering exemplary service, obviously their own work reflected that. And, and it was noteworthy that uh, Harvard Business Review did a, did a whole article on it. Um, and that's because we need the why. And, and as we started on verses 16 to 21 of John 3, the notion of why is right at the center of the truth that John is providing for us here. 
Uh, If you remember from last time, we looked at the first 15 verses of John chapter 3, where Jesus is recorded in this dialogue with Nicodemus. And, And that section ended with Jesus referencing an incident from Numbers chapter 21, Uh, where we had that story of of Israel wandering in the desert and they had begun grumbling against God and against Moses again. And as part of God's judgment upon them for their continued grumbling, uh, serpents entered the camp and Moses was instructed to create this pole with a serpent on top and anyone who looked to that pole would be saved from from the effect of the serpents. They'd be saved from the judgment of God. That was a Numbers 21 story. Uh, Jesus takes that story and says that ultimately was pointing forward to what happens when you look to me. Uh, To look to Jesus, we're saved from the ultimate judgment of God. And that's where he leaves Nicodemus at the end of their dialogue. He's been speaking to Nicodemus about the the critical nature of being born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And and he doesn't end that conversation with Nicodemus by telling Nicodemus that that he can make himself okay. He, He makes it very clear that we can't reborn ourselves. That's something the Spirit of God must do in our hearts. But what we are called to do is look to Jesus as he's lifted up. Ultimately, look to Christ as he's lifted up on the cross, just like that Old Testament story pointed forward to. And as we look to him, we'll find life. That's our part. That's what we're that's what we're called to do. So that's where we end with verse 15. Look to Jesus. And now as we enter verses 16 to 21, John provides the why, as in why do we look to Jesus to be saved? That's what John is helping us with here. Actually, he's helping us with that in two ways. There's two uh, fours. In John 3.16 through 21, at least two main ones, we have the four that begins John 3.16 and then the four that begins John 17. Those give us the two main reasons there that John is providing uh, for us in terms of why we look to Jesus and find and find this life. Um, now, I, now I, I probably need to mention something else that's a little bit textual here just to give some clarity. Uh, some Bibles may have verses 16 to 21 in red letters, uh, maybe your Bible has that this morning. If you're if you're reading in certain print, printed editions, uh, we know that, that some Bibles in their printing try to put the words recounted by what Jesus uh, of what Jesus spoke in red, uh, but that's not always helpful um, for a number of reasons, which is not the point of this little talk. Except to say that verses 16 to 21 is oftentimes or sometimes put in red. Uh, But that's not very helpful there because actually verses 16 to 21 isn't Jesus' continued interaction with Nicodemus, uh, but instead it's actually John's narrator comments for us. And and there are a number of reasons why we can know this. You know, John didn't have the luxury of quotation marks when he was writing in in ancient Greek, Uh, but there are literary clues that help us understand that Jesus' dialogue ends and John's narrator comments begin here for us. Um, For example, a lot of the language here actually mirrors the language that John used in the prologue in the first 18 chapters of his gospel when he was introducing things to us. Like, for example, the term world has only been used once since the prologue, but in this section it's used five times. The word light hasn't been used at all since the prologue. Again, here it's used five times. The language of one and only son, that, that only appears here in the, in, in, in the prologue. And, and so the list goes on. But, but what's here is consistent with the nature and style of John's speech, not with the nature and style of what, of what uh, Jesus', Jesus speech is recorded as in John's gospel. So all that to say that helps us because it helps us to see that what's here isn't necessarily an extension 
of verses 1 to 15, that narrative. But actually what's here is John's narrator explanation of that, of that section for us. Now John gives us this reason why. Uh, because Jesus has said to Nicodemus, what you must do is look at the lifted up Son of Man. So look to Jesus, lift it up on the cross. That's where life is going to be found for you. That's Jesus' instruction to Nicodemus. And we hear that. And as astute readers, we find this question building under John's gospel. In fact, we have this question for John as our writer, and that question is, why? Why is life found by looking to Jesus? And that's a legitimate question, because after all, as it was in John's day, so it still is in our day. We live in a world surrounded by options that promise life. We're surrounded by that. There are, there are spiritual options, there are, there are financial options, there are social options. In fact, in fact, just thinking in terms of spiritual options, you can go down 13th Street here and stop by Raven Wing Magical Co-op and purchase bronzite stones that are promised to relieve anxiety and bring courage to your life. They promise life. Spiritual options abound around us. And, and so do social options too. For example, if we frame our life by embracing certain defined values that culture uh, holds in high regard. There's a reward there of, of, of life promised through those social relationships, satisfaction, acceptance, these kinds of things wait for us. Life is there if, if we'll, if we'll uh, include the social values around us in our own values. Or maybe it's the financial option that, that can be appealing to us. That's where true life is going to be found. You know, live like nobody else so you can live like nobody else. Set yourself up with complete financial freedom. Then wholeness of life can be found for you. We know, we know promises uh, for life like this abound around us. However, the spiritual promises, say for example of sacred stones from the magic shop, they don't leave us courageous, they leave us confused. And then the social relationships, they don't leave us whole, but often leave us abandoned and rejected. And as for financial security, one big medical bill comes. And, and, and hope for life found in financial well-being comes tumbling down just about as fast as interest rates are going up. So, so the life the world offers can't deliver on its promises. What we need is life now and life everlasting. And what John is saying to us is look to Jesus for that life and here's why. Here's why. So in our verses today, John gives us the first and big reason why we look to Jesus for the true life that we really need. And the reason is this. We look to Jesus to find life. Because Jesus is the definitive expression. Of God's life giving love for the world. Why do we look to Jesus? We look to Jesus. Because when it comes to considering the God. Uh, who made the world and everything in it. Jesus is his definitive expression. Of life giving love for us. That's what John 3.16 tells us. And while this verse is well known to us, it's very familiar, we need this truth to come to us again and again and again. Uh, maybe you, you can recall how we talked a few weeks ago about the need for reminders in our life as Christian believers. Remember how we need to be reminded probably more often than we need to be instructed? And here's a big reminder of the gospel in John 3.16. We find life in Jesus because Jesus is God's definitive. He's, he's God's climactic highest expression of love for the world and in that love real and lasting life is found and maybe you need that reminder this morning we all do from time to time 
Or maybe or maybe this is something you even really need to consider for the first time this morning. Why should I trust in Jesus? Why, why should I place my faith and my hope in the significance of what he's done and who he says he is? Why? We know that alternatives are all around us. Those alternatives can be so attractive, maybe even just for a while. I might be tempted to, to step back from the realities of Christ and try some of those things. But, but no, John says, he's making it very clear here that, that as we look through this verse, true life, ultimate life, God's love that leads to life is only found in the person of Christ. So let's think about verse 16 together. It's so familiar to us, but, uh, but again, meditating on familiar truths is 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 one of the most critical aspects of gospel living. And so, and so we'll do that this morning. Um, we'll start with, with the phrase. We'll just take each phrase as we go. So first of all, we'll speak, we'll speak to the very beginning. For God loved the world. For God loved the world. Um, now we read that phrase. Again, it's very familiar. It's theology we know. God loves the world. Uh, and hearing that, immediately we can think in terms of lo- God's love being uh, so large and endless. God's love is as big as the globe and it extends to all people. And of course, there's a sense in which that's, that's very true. God's love is that vast and wide and deep. Uh, it's big enough for the whole world and it's, it's that far-reaching love for the world that's expressed in every sunrise and sunset and spring rain. Um, but as we've studied John so far, we're starting to get used to the fact that sometimes John uses basic language in more technical kinds of ways. And we've, and we've talked about this already in our studies with the way John uses the term translated world. So it's helpful to remember that John doesn't use the term world to refer to the largeness of the ends of the earth, so to speak, even though we, we hear world and we immediately think vast and big. Uh, but for John, world isn't so much a bigness category. Instead, most of the time when John uses the term, he's speaking of the realm of human darkness and sin. Uh, so... And I think it was Carson who coined the phrase, but the world isn't bigness for John, but badness. And if you just read through the gospel of John watching for that distinction, we see how clearly it's present. For example, in John 7, verse 7, we have Jesus saying that the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. The world's works are evil. Or John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And we, we could go on with, with a number of other references. But again, we, we start here recognizing that when John uses the word world like he uses it here, he's speaking about humanity and our sin, rejecting our creator and choosing to walk in darkness rather than in light. We have that later on even in, in chapter 3 here. He's going to bring that up again. So, so that's the world. It's the realm of human rebellion against God. Badness, not bigness. So God loved the world. That, that, that kind of takes on a, a different ring when we have that frame of reference for the language that John is using here. God loves us in our rebellious, lost darkness. And it's actually that truth and all, and all the darkness that our condition against God represents, it's that truth that makes this statement here all the more amazing. God loved the world. So, so as we think about the love of God from this verse, we immediately have to start navigating a shift in our normal categories for love. So let's just just think this out for a moment. Most of the time for us, love is typically based on some kind of attraction, isn't it? You, you think of someone falling, falling in love. Um, I think of when I fell in love with my wife, Julia. 
Uh, part of that meant, and maybe a much bigger part than I would care to admit, but part of that falling in love with her meant that I loved certain things that were attractive to me about her. Right? I like looking at her because she's pretty. I like talking with her because I enjoyed the conversation. I like being with her because it made me happy. I loved her because there was so much about her. I still love her because there's so I should Past tense will get me in trouble. I still love her right, because there's so much about her that's appealing to me. And then that's a normal way we think about love. And that's not all bad, of course. That, that's, that's a very good thing, too. But here we have to see how John is speaking in entirely different categories than we're ever used to speaking in. He's revealing to us the extraordinary reality of God's love, and that love is completely different in its expression than our normal experience of extending love, because we're being shown here that God looks down upon humanity, and he doesn't see with a kind of view, you know, like I had when I met Julia, where I saw a pretty girl in chemistry class that I really wanted to take out to lunch, right? No, God looks down and he doesn't see something attractive. God looks down upon humanity and he sees us what we, for what we really are. Right? We're a world full of evil. We're, we're a world that is set on going against the God who made us. We're in darkness. In fact, just for the sake of, of being totally clear on the matter, we, we know from our Bibles that our condition is that of being in conscious, responsible, direct, and continual violation of God's eternal purity. His divine standard is what we've violated, even though he's created us to live by it and flourish by it. So, so we're not attractive. We're dark rebel forces actively engaging in cosmic treason against the all-powerful master of the universe. That's not pretty. That's not attractive. So again, Carson, he says, the love of God is not the consequence of our loveliness. And this is something that is so central to the good news about Jesus and so central to why we need Jesus that we can never forget this. God loved us in our badness. Right? So the psalmist in Psalm 40, he can describe the condition that God found him in and rescued him from as being in a miry bog. Right? A miry, that's disgusting. Right? A miry bog, is it would be gross to fall into a miry bog. But that's the condition we're in. And, and, and God doesn't just see us there, but he loves us there. This is so critically recalibrating for us if we're really going to understand the good news about Jesus. It's always possible for us to start thinking about the love of God in terms of our merit. We just have this natural human inclination to start sliding into that. I must make myself lovely so he will love me. Right? There's no greater wrong understanding of God's love than that. It is in our unlovable state that God extends his love to us. So C.S. Lewis, as he's wrestling with, with the meritless love of God from his own perspective, C.S. Lewis says, God's love for me is always a much safer subject for me to think about than my love for him. But, but we can get into those kinds of ruts. I'm not loving him right, so he won't love. I'm not loving God well, so he won't love me. I'm frail and fallen and faltering, and, and I must clean up before I yield to his call, and he'll really be willing to call me his child, and all these kinds of things. But we have to hear this. With a true understanding of God's love, the gospel does not call us to live a life of, of I don't know another way to put it, of waterboarding our hearts with guilt. And it's easy for us to fall into those traps where the guilt just weighs on us and weighs on us and weighs on us, and we think, I just must not be who, who God could possibly love because of all of these things in my past and my present and the worries I have for the future. No, the gospel calls us to see that God's love for me is sourced in his pure, holy character and is not dependent upon my daily beauty. 
In fact, quite the opposite. Despite my impurity, despite your impurity, God loved the world. Okay, so, so then how does that love for the world look? We've got to speak about manner now. And this is what we see when we keep going. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. Now, if we just meditate on this for a moment, this whole notion of love for the world um, is, is interesting, especially when we think about John using the phrase, because John, our gospel writer here, he writes uh, to the churches in his first letter in 1 John, which Jason preached through a while back for us, and, and he tells the church very directly there, do not love the world or the things of the world. And then listen to this. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's 1 John 2.15. Which can give us a little bit of whiplash as we read our Bibles because God loves the world, John 3.16. And then we're told if we love the world, God's love isn't in us, 1 John 2.15. So what's that about? But, but you see, manner is everything here. When John writes his letter and tells the church not to love the world, he follows it up by warning them against a kind of selfish, capitulating love. So John calls out the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions. You see, so often our own love, it can be distorted. So, so John says, in effect, do not love the world with a love of selfish participation. Here, however, with God, his manner of love is entirely opposite of that and that he loves the world with this sacrificial self-giving action. God loved the world in this way. What way is that? God gave his one and only son. This is the manner in which God has loved the world. The manner of his love is measured by the magnitude of his gift, we could say. He gave us Jesus. Now, on the one hand, that giving language here, it reflects sending, doesn't it? So, so according to God the Father's plan, Jesus willingly, as he considered us above himself, like we read in Philippians 2, Jesus uh, willingly set aside the glories of heaven and took humanity to himself. Uh, and it, it, was, it was that uh, God the Father gave Jesus in the sending of Jesus. So we have that element there. But that giving extended all the way to giving him up to the cross. So God's love is the sacrificial love, um, which is the manner in which God has, has loved the world in its badness. He gave his son to ultimately be the sufficient sacrifice to pay the price that our badness deserves. So, so Jesus bore the, the full judgment penalty for our sin, for all who will believe in him as he hung on the cross. And in that we have this, this manner with which God the Father has shown his love. And that offer of love obviously extends to the whole world and it's rebellion. Come to Christ and find this life. Which is a kind of love, again, that just blows apart our love categories. We just think about the relationship that's represented here in God's giving of His one and only Son. For, for all eternity past, God the Father and God the Son had shared perfect love and fellowship. That They had a relationship outside the confines of time and creation that never began but always was. And categories just too big for our finite minds to comprehend. Right? God the Son... And God the Father, in union with God the Holy Spirit, they shared complete, perfect, undefiled communion, unbroken in the eternal realms of, of unfathomable glory. And, and, and as we know, sons and fathers can have wonderful relationships, but, but earthly sons and fathers, they never have perfect relationships all the time. However, God the Father and God the Son enjoyed perfect and uninterrupted unity, love from eternity past, 
So when we read that God gave his only son, knowing what that giving ultimately represents, sending and sacrifice, we understand that this is a love for us that is expressed by a gift of incomprehensible worth. It is impossible for me to put a value on my children. And I almost can't say that sentence. Right? It's impossible for me because my kids are so dear to me, I can't make a verbal value judgment of them. They're just so dear. And I'm a fallen sinful father. How about God and his only son? It's impossible to put a value on the godness of the son, first of all. And it's impossible to put a value on the dearness of the son to God the father. We can't fully wrap our head around how great that manner of love is that's been extended to us. But we can know that the love of God for us is measured by this gift he gave. This is the manner with which he's loved us. The giving of Jesus, in fact, is the definitive proof of God's love. Which is why by the time we get to chapter 4 of John's first letter, he actually clarifies things a little further where he says, this is love. Okay, what's love? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So a scholar by the name of Watkin, he says the love of God has particular contours. Our love, my love, is so often attached to getting. I love something, so I want it. God's love is completely defined by giving. He loves, so he gave his one and only son. So one writer put it this way, when God loves, he does not act to acquire or accumulate. Instead, he gives his son for unworthy others. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. The definitive display of God's love is the sending of Jesus. Jesus is the manner in which God has loved us. So then here's a, here's a question for us to think about. How do we, how do you, define the manner of God's love for you? Let me tell you how I've defined the manner of God's love for me at different times in my life. I've defined the love of God for me by my good or bad physical health. I've defined the love of God for me by money levels in my bank account. I've defined God's love for me by how my kids are doing or, or how my marriage is feeling. I've defined the love of God for me by my experiences or lack thereof in times of pri private Bible reading and prayer. I've defined God's love for me by whether or not I get leisure time, consciously or, or subconsciously. I've tried to define the manner of God's love for me by so many things I could stand up here and probably list them off all day long, and I bet you could too. But I'm wrong to define God's love for me by any of those measures. How do we define God's love for us? We're told right here, God loved the world in this way. How has God loved? He gave his one and only son. And that is a measurement of love that will hold up against anything the world and its badness might bring our way. That measurement of love will hold up against a cancer diagnosis. That measurement of love will hold up under life's hardships that are confusing and too hard to understand. That measurement of love will hold up amid relationship strife or abandonment. That measurement of love will hold up in the middle of financial disaster. That measurement of love will hold up when you lose a loved one in a bowling alley in Maine because a mass shooter showed up. 
That measurement of love will hold up against anything this life can bring. And here's why. That measurement of love will hold up against anything this life can bring because that measurement of love has at its very center the promise of true and everlasting life in its giving. We've already referenced it, but look at the last clause of our verse to see that. God gave His Son for a purpose. So that everyone, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. P perishing is our default natural born destiny. We'll talk about this at more length next week in the verses that are coming. But, but we aren't just lost in our badness uh, trying to find our way home on a trail. We're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. The death we deserve that leads to eternal judgment is the death we're born into. But for those who believe in Jesus, everything changes. God loved us by sending his son to die on the cross and rise again so that the path of eternal life could be ours if we will only trust in Jesus. And, and, there, and in this, there's just no middle way. Do you see how John frames it out here? There's no third way represented in the text. It's eternal life or it's perishing. There's, there's the embrace of the love of God, which is expressed in the coming of Christ to die on the cross for our sin, or there's perishing. There's eternal judgment or there's eternal life. And the only reality that differentiates between those two paths is trusting in Jesus and his work. That's where life is found. Life is bigger than cancer. Life is bigger than relationship abandonment. Life is bigger than addiction. Life is bigger than any measurement of ruin we can endure in this dark world. It's actually very interesting here. John uses, John uses such simple Greek in his writing, but, but his simplicity is so powerful. He uses a present tense verb here with this word that's translated as have. And that should excite you. I can tell it is. Yeah. No. But it should excite us. Have eternal life. It's not future tense. It's not even an aorist tense that gives a sense of a whole picture. It's present tense. In other words, it's a right now kind of thing. So we could actually say, whosoever believes in Jesus is right now having eternal life. Which is actually a concept that's going to show up in John from time to time again. But belief in Jesus is not to gain a promise of life just for the heavenly realities of a new creation to come. Though of course it is that and we have our hope set on that in an extraordinary way. Hope that never fails. But, but it is more than just that future hope. It's life right now. To trust in Jesus means that while we may pass through death when our final day comes. As Jesus says in John 5, we will have already passed from death to life when we believed in him. No ruin in this life has any ultimate grip on us because the ultimate non-perishing life that comes from the love of God in Christ Jesus is bigger, full stop, and it's ours as we're trusting in Him. We are right now having eternal life if we're trusting in Jesus. Which is why Paul can say strange things like your life is that you're already secured with Christ in the heavenlies. I'm not with Christ in the heavenlies. I'm in Portland in the smile station. Why can he speak like that? Because of the absolute reality that salvation eternity is ours in the immediacy of this moment through the life that's purchased for us by Jesus right now. So, so we're back to the beginning. Why, John? Like, why are we to look to Jesus raised up on a cross if we really want to find life? The answer from John 3.16 is that Jesus on the cross is the definitive proof of God's life-giving love for the world. That's why we look to Jesus. There's no greater expression of God's love than in the sending of His Son. And there's no other hope for life but God's love displayed through the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. You can't earn this love. You can't merit it. 
In fact, in fact, here's the thing. In the trying to merit it, you actually merit it even less. <laughs> you can't do it. But you can look to Jesus, John's saying, you can trust in him and find that life given to us as a gift from the love of God there. So, so there's the old hymn. I'll quote, I'll quote it for you. You might know it. It's, all, all my life I had a longing for a drink from some clear spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the husks around me Till my strength was almost gone, long my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Have you known something of that? Long my soul for something better, only still to still be hungry. Okay. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered around me only mocked my soul's sad cry. And then everything changes. Well of water, ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, Untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, I have found him, whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his blood. I now am saved. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So are you believing? Be believing. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we praise you for the gift that you've given in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that we would have hearts that are turned towards you and are believing. We know that life can never be found elsewhere. We know experientially because we've tried. And we know uh, theologically because your word is truth and reveals that to us. And we pray that we'd be renewed in the fact that Jesus is our life and he's ours despite us, uh, but simply because you love us. And we praise you for that truth. May we be renewed in it today. In Jesus' name, amen.